This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, everyone. This is a bonus episode while you wait for season six to begin. It doesn't quite fit into season five about the history of fundamentalism, and it doesn't really fit into season six. It's just an important story. I tried to get today's guest for the show a few years ago, and we finally were able to make it happen, so I jumped on the chance. And season six is coming along nicely. I've got several episodes locked, and I'm in the process of completing several more. It's such a complicated story that I want to have a good deal of it completed before I start releasing, so I don't fall behind. I'll keep you posted. Also, this show usually covers history as it relates to the Christian church. This episode does not have that direct bent, but its reverberations are felt in both Season 3 and Season 6, so it's well worth covering. Okay, here's the bonus. So a lot of people, Democrats and Republicans, were understandably worried about what they thought was not just communist expansion abroad, which people thought rightly or wrongly was a threat to an American and a democratic way of life, but they were very concerned about whether we had spies in our own government. This is Larry Tai. My name is Larry Tai. I'm an author, and I've written books on a range of strange characters, ranging from Superman to Bobby Kennedy, from the Pullman Porters, the Black men who worked on railroads, to Satchel Paige, and most recently, Joe McCarthy. That's who we're talking about today, Senator Joseph McCarthy, one of those rare individuals to have his own ism, That's McCarthyism, which Larry covers in his book, Demagogue. The Russian Revolution happened in 1917 with the fall of the Romanov dynasty. From that time on, leaders in the United States government watched Russia with suspicion. How would communism play out? Would it be a threat? We know now, with the benefit of hindsight, that it meant the death of millions of people, first in Russia, then in China and elsewhere. It also placed the United States at odds with communist powers in what would become known as the Cold War. That struggle dragged much of the Third World into the conflict as we vied for who would control natural resources in the Southern Hemisphere. There was real worry that communists would infiltrate the United States. People like Harry Truman took that concern uh, to a level of imposing the strictest loyalty codes that we had ever had for government workers, where essentially it was almost assumed that you were guilty of disloyalty unless you could prove your loyalty. And in Congress, that took the form of the House Un-American Activities Committee, which well before Joe McCarthy had been going after what they thought were communist spies, and which in their case sometimes proved to be true. There were actual spies, like Klaus Fuchs, who stole nuclear secrets from the Manhattan Project and gave them to the Soviets. Or the controversial Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were put to death for smuggling government secrets. The House Un-American Activities Committee was formed in 1938, before World War II began and before the Soviets became our allies. They found spies, the names of whom wouldn't mean much to listeners today, but they were people ranging from senior people in the White House to people um, throughout the government. And as Joe McCarthy understood well, the agency of government that seemed to be most riddled 
with spies, or at least that's the way it appeared, was the U.S. State Department, which was the agency that was setting our foreign policy. So it was understandably scary to people when we were watching Russia suddenly develop its atomic bomb, when we were seeing stories of Russian expansion around the world, to think that uh, there could be communists and spies within our own government was a scary prospect. Keep that in mind. Today, with all the movies that make light of the Cold War, it may seem like the threat was overplayed. But as a country, we were legitimately concerned about nuclear weapons. Labor protests, civil rights demonstrations, and evolving ideas about taking care of the elderly or unemployed had people seeing communists behind every door. Starting in 1947, federal employees had to give a loyalty oath. The FBI investigated anyone thought to be even a little suspicious. 4.8 million people were screened in six years, with over 26,000 people investigated by the FBI. Perhaps the most famous person on the hunt for communists in the government was Senator Joseph McCarthy, a man who not only accused communists, but bullied, strong-armed, and played the media to get what he wanted. And even today, we still feel the echoes of McCarthyism. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. As a young man, Joe McCarthy raised chickens, then managed a grocery store in Wisconsin. He wanted more, but hadn't graduated high school. So at 20 years old, he went back to school and knocked out all four grades in one year. Then he went to college, became a small-town lawyer, and a circuit judge. He played cards, gambled, and was always in money trouble. He drank heavily and was a tough boxer. When World War II broke out, he enlisted. So his military career contains a perfect look at Joe McCarthy, the good and the bad of McCarthy. Uh, the good was that he had, when he was running for Senate, proclaimed himself a World War II hero. He had told stories about his exploits in the South Pacific Island where he was stationed for the U.S. Marine Corps, his exploits going up in planes as a tail gunner. Something that folks in the media later investigated, but could not corroborate when he later became a senator. The man talked a big game, but couldn't always produce proof when he needed it. They mocked him by calling him Tail Gunner Joe. And they looked and thought that he, his record was one of, in fact, being officially stationed on the ground. And what the heck was he doing claiming to have been a war hero up in planes? He wasn't assigned to work in the air. How could he have been a tail gunner when the military had him on the ground? For a long time, people thought these stories were just more hot air from Joe McCarthy. But Larry did some sleuthing. When I started writing my book, there was a trove of all of McCarthy's personal and professional papers that his widow had left to his alma mater, which was Marquette University in Milwaukee. And she left them with a provision that those papers would become public when either of two things happened. Either when Joe McCarthy's daughter died or when this daughter, who was younger than me and alive and well, said, yes, the paper should become public. For years, Joe's daughter either denied request to see the documents or flat out said no. But for Larry... One day, I got a note 
from the archivist at Marquette saying, to our shock, the daughter has said that you can have access to the papers and that the day you stop looking, they go under lock and key again. And surprisingly, he discovered that McCarthy was telling the truth. That while his official duty was as a land-based intelligence officer, he volunteered for missions, he volunteered to fly in the back of a plane as a tail gunner, and he put himself at huge risk of being shot down when he didn't have to do that. He was a war hero. Larry was able to find the documentary evidence that had evaded journalists for decades. I think the lesson to me is, if you lie often enough, and Joe McCarthy lied often enough, when you're telling the truth, people might not believe you. Joe lied in other ways. For example, he told people he enlisted at the bottom and then worked his way up, when in fact, he started as an officer. Before the war, he told folks that he was the youngest circuit judge in the history of the state. Also, not true. In life, as in gambling, McCarthy bluffed often. And when he did, he went all in. He was also a Democrat in a red state, voted for FDR three times, and even liked the New Deal. He saw that being a Democrat in Wisconsin wasn't going to get him far. So with an eye on the U.S. Senate, he switched parties running while still in the Marines. It was illegal, as was made clear in rulings from the top levels of the Pentagon, for soldiers to be campaigning, for them to mix their military service with their politics. But Joe McCarthy strung banners across his tent and across his Jeep, basically proclaiming his campaign for the U.S. Senate. And there weren't a whole lot of votes in his Wisconsin district in his South Pacific island. But back home, people ate up the idea of electing a Marine who was fighting for the country. Yes, it was illegal to campaign, but McCarthy was never one to let the law get in the way of what he wanted. Yeah, so what he was doing was mailing or having his family and his friends mail tens of thousands of postcards and other material through the mail as part of his campaign. Something that will be a theme next season. Direct mail allows people like Joe to circumvent traditional media and tell people what they want to hear without the fact checkers getting involved. And that was one of a dozen ways in which Joe McCarthy's politicking anticipated what is going on in today's politics. He understood every form of the media and exploited it, whether it was newspaper coverage, whether it was direct mail, whether it was embellishing what he was doing and assuming the press would never catch up to his embellishments or would catch up too late. McCarthy understood the media well, and he used it to his benefit. This time, the bluff worked. So he beats an entrenched senator, a longtime senator from Wisconsin named La Follette. And the LaFollettes were to Wisconsin what the Tafts were to Ohio and what the Kennedys were to my native Massachusetts. He took on an icon of the Senate, beats him, and then goes on to be an incredibly undistinguished first-term junior senator who looked like he would be a one-term senator. And he was sufficiently unimpressive that on the famous, the most famous day in Republican Party circles is the day honoring Abraham Lincoln. In this case, it was February 9th, 1950. Republican politicians are invited to give speeches all around the country. And prominent senators get invited to places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, New York and Boston. Politicians like Joe McCarthy who were total backbenchers 
got invited in his case to Wheeling, West Virginia. It's this moment that launched McCarthy into the spotlight. And he shows up that night in Wheeling, West Virginia, with a briefcase containing two speeches. One was a speech on national housing policy. And had he read that speech that night, 75 years later, we wouldn't be here talking about Joe McCarthy. But instead, he reached deeper into his briefcase. He pulled out a speech. He waved it in the air and said, I have in my hand a list of all kinds of spies at the U.S. State Department and in other critical places in the U.S. government. And these are spies who are dangerous to our country. These are spies who President Truman either does know about or should have known about. And these are spies that I promise I'm going to expose and weed out. Here is an actor reading from the speech. There, the bright young men who are born with silver spoons in their mouths are the ones who have been most traitorous. I have in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. It's not just a claim about communists. It's also a populist statement, calling members of the State Department bright young men who are born with silver spoons in their mouths. Smearing the East and West Coast elites was a trademark of McCarthyism. Now, what he had in his hand that night might have been his wife's grocery list. It might have been a recycled set of of spies from the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee. But what we know he didn't have in his hand is a list of the uh, 24-karat gold-plated spies that he claimed. Despite the bluster, he didn't have the goods. And he never produced that list even though journalists begged for it and members of Congress wanted to see it. But he learned a very important lesson that night, that if you make an extraordinary charge, like the government being riddled with spies, that it will get coverage in every newspaper, not just in America, but around the world. And by the time the press catches up and tries to really look clearly at whether the people he named were spies and decides to publish their responses. His stories on page one, their story a day or two later is next to the corset ads on page 67. Joe McCarthy was off and running. That number, 205 communists, is odd. He didn't say how he picked it. It may have come from a State Department letter released earlier claiming that there were 285 staffers with potentially damaging information on them and not necessarily communists. They could have been fascists, people with criminal records, or homosexuals in a time when it was potentially illegal to be gay. There were fears that a person could be blackmailed into giving up state secrets against a threat of being publicly outed. 79 of that 285 were fired, leaving 206. I mean, it's not exactly the 205 that Joe claimed, but close enough. That may have been where the number came from, but who knows? So I don't know what it was about the number 205 that appealed Joe McCarthy, but the number, as you say, changed from time to time. And at one point it was 57. And people speculated that it may have been that he was in a restaurant having his trademark hamburger and putting Heinz 57 sauce on it, or it could have come from anywhere. He sometimes also changed it to 207, depending on the day. There was no basis to his number and there was no magic or basis to the list that he would eventually, the list that he ended up 
producing at various times, which had different numbers and were always incomplete. Whatever the number, imaginary or real, it made McCarthy a sensation. The story was picked up by newspapers all over the country, and this junior senator, with no real distinctions, was suddenly everywhere, ready to point fingers. He set up an office to supposedly investigate communists in the American government. Donations poured in from across the country, especially from Texas, where wealthy oilmen ponied up to his cause. Joe, forever in debt, was known to pocket what he could. Joe's claims were so big that he himself was investigated by a congressional committee within months. So Senator Millard Tidings from Maryland was one of the most old school and distinguished senators in that august body. And he was outraged by what McCarthy was doing. He felt that McCarthy was a fraud and he went after him. But Tidings was no opponent for a guy who was a street fighter and a dirty player like Joe McCarthy. 1950 was an election year, and Tidings was up for re-election, something that McCarthy was able to play to his advantage by campaigning for someone else to take his opponent's seat. He did this with the same tactics that got him elected, using bulk mail. One publication included a photo of Tidings hanging out with a known communist. The only problem is, the photo wasn't real. It was a composite of other pictures. A fake. But it did the job, convincing people that Tidings should not be re-elected. McCarthy, when he was investigated, did all they could to oppose the investigator. Running a know-nothing, unknown candidate against Miller Tidings, watching that candidate win, and the same way he had done in Wisconsin when he beat La Follette, um, another titan of the Senate went down at the hands of Joe McCarthy. He did the same in 1952 with another senator who dared oppose him. In return, McCarthy gained power and notoriety and the backing of everyone he put into office. He received around 2,000 requests to speak across the country, more than all the other senators combined. His office got busy making accusations and trying to substantiate those they'd already made. Meanwhile, Joe played the system to stay in the spotlight. So he knew how the press worked, and he knew that if, instead of releasing your bombshell charges um, in the morning when the press had all day to investigate them, if you did it in the evening, just before journalist deadline, they would publish your charges in the next day's paper, and then they'd start investigating them for the next day after that's paper. And he knew that the counter charges, the defense is never as strong as the offense. And so he knew how to play the press with deadlines. He knew how to court reporters, to take them out drinking, to shower praise on them. He knew journalists have egos like everybody else does. And if you leak things to reporters or made them feel special, they were going to make you feel special on the front page of their newspapers. Using these tactics, he managed to control the story for four years. In 1952, the Republicans took control of the Senate and Joe McCarthy won his place at the head of the Senate Investigations Committee. Now, he not only had the weight of the Senate, but also a budget. And they've taken over the majority, and suddenly McCarthy goes from being a backbencher to being chairman of a very powerful subcommittee called the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, as well as chair of the overall Government Operations Committee. And he is looking for just the right 
aggressive young staffer to dig up the kinds of things that he felt that he needed to dig up to keep his crusade going in terms of names of people he could accuse of being communists and in terms of what seemed like damning evidence. And he finds this young, ambitious, brilliant lawyer in New York named Roy Cohn. He was a prosecutor of the Rosenberg trial at just 23 and was every bit as aggressive as Joe. As a reminder, the Rosenbergs were executed on charges of spying for the communists. In the HBO documentary series about Cohen, bully, coward, victim, person after person calls him the most evil man they've ever met. He had a gaunt face with big, haunting eyes. He was a well-connected bulldog known not only for dodging taxes, but also failing to pay for everything from dinners to expensive art. He'd later go on to be a lawyer for the mob. He fought legislation to give equal rights to both women and homosexuals, despite himself being gay. McCarthy then had to decide who to make his chief of staff, Cohn or this other guy you've probably heard of. A um, recent graduate of the University of Virginia Law School named Robert F. Kennedy. Yes, that Robert Kennedy, brother of future president John F. Kennedy. Their father, Joe, was a friend of McCarthy. It's possible that this posting with McCarthy seemed like a way to help the family name. Years earlier, Joe Kennedy had advocated for appeasing the Nazis, and likely didn't want to be seen as doing the same for the communists. Putting his son in touch with the country's loudest anti-communist probably seemed like a good move. But Cohn had an advantage over Kennedy. He was Jewish. It would be helpful for McCarthy to give him the top position to put down allegations that McCarthy was an anti-Semite. Joe made Roy Cohn his chief of staff, leaving Bobby, to his future benefit, out of the spotlight. And Cohn and McCarthy are off on what Bobby Kennedy would later describe as a toboggan ride down a steep hill with no brakes. McCarthy called 546 witnesses in just a few years. Many of the hearings against protocol were private and may not have included any other members of the committee except McCarthy or Cohn. Witnesses were often summoned to testify the night before they were expected to appear, leaving them little time to prepare or retain counsel. Some people chose to plead their Fifth Amendment rights, and if they did, McCarthy labeled them as traitors, saying, An innocent man does not need the Fifth Amendment. The name he gave them was Fifth Amendment Communists. Two-thirds of his hearings going after communists were held behind closed doors, and we never got a peek at them. But... Recently, just before my book came out, the transcripts of all those hearings suddenly became public. There was a 50-year rule. They were under lock and key for 50 years, and suddenly we had a look at them. And what they show is, as bad as we thought that Joe McCarthy was when he went public with his hearings, when he was behind closed doors and he and Roy Cohn could really run roughshod over the rights of witnesses, and the ones who stood up to him, not surprisingly, never appeared in public session because he didn't want to have eloquent, convincing witnesses there. The ones who caved most easily were the ones who we saw paraded in the public sessions. And all I can say is it would have been miserable. I would never want to be before any Senate investigative committee, but I sure as heck wouldn't have wanted to been before Joe McCarthy's committee. And I wouldn't have wanted to been, uh, have appeared before Joe McCarthy in the morning when he was stone 
cold sober, but I definitely wouldn't want to appear before him in the afternoon after he had had several drinks at lunch, and he was often, what was clear from the transcripts, not so sober. It's difficult to quantify the effect these men had on the country. It may not sound that bad to have to testify before a hearing, but it inflicted a lot of stress. One Voice of America engineer named Raymond Kaplan threw himself in front of a truck rather than appear before the hearings. Another man named Bob LaFollette, from the congressional dynasty mentioned earlier, shot himself after having fired a staffer suspected of being a communist, but not telling the FBI. We're talking about intense social pressure. This went on for years, and it's hard for us to appreciate what it meant to be labeled a communist, or even a Fifth Amendment communist. It meant potentially losing all of your friends, being asked to leave your church, a divorce, your children harassed at school, not just loss of employment, but becoming unemployable. We can just imagine if your name is splashed across a newspaper during a Red Scare era, and you're being accused not just of being a communist, which was bad enough then, but you're being accused of being a communist who sold out your country, that was not something that was going to stand you well in terms of your future and your family's future, and McCarthy ruined lives. It was a serious charge, leveled willy-nilly by people with connections. To him, it was almost a game. He was a great sort of fare-thee-well kind of guy, and he could be leveling scalding charges against somebody during the day in his subcommittee and invite them out for a drink at night because it all seemed like a game. And he thought everybody understands this is the way politics works in Washington and in America. So my book was called Demagogue and my book could as easily have been called Bully because Bully is a much simpler and more easily understood way of saying the same thing. It is somebody who is like a schoolyard bully and that's what Joe McCarthy was. Though he left a wake of destruction, he was immensely popular. About half the country backed McCarthy in what he was doing. He had powerful supporters, some of whom will become important next season, like Howard Jarvis, who sparked the tax revolt in the 1970s, and Phyllis Schlafly, the one-woman force of nature who stopped the Equal Rights Amendment and created the pro-family movement. They were fans of McCarthy, but so were Walt Disney, John Wayne, and several heads of the Hollywood studios. There were... People in the FBI, including, at the beginning at least, J. Edgar Hoover, who thought McCarthy was doing more good than harm. Hoover and McCarthy met regularly for lunch and frequently traded information back and forth. Hoover would either himself or have his people leak material to McCarthy. And again, in the papers that we were discussing earlier, these papers that were McCarthy's personal and professional papers, they would have stamps across many of the documents saying top secret. And it was very clear that those papers had been leaked by somebody to Joe McCarthy. And it's also clear from notes that he wrote in the margins of some of the papers, it's pretty clear that the leaker was doing the leaking with the authorization at the very top of the FBI, meaning J. Edgar Hoover. The leaks demonstrate yet another hypocrisy in the life of Joseph McCarthy. McCarthy's going after people for leaking sensitive documents from the U.S. government. And on the other hand, he was using to make those charges sensitive documents from the U.S. government that were leaked to him, many of which were just speculation. You know, an FBI agent might compile a report on somebody and have it be something that was entirely inconclusive. But if McCarthy said the FBI has a file on this person, 
the fact that it was inconclusive never made it into the newspaper story. It was that the FBI had a file on them, and that was good enough for Joe McCarthy, and sadly, it was good enough for too many reporters. The witch hunts continued for years, first with his unofficial bluster and then with the full weight of the United States Senate, generating suicides, divorces, harassment, and fear. But the nightmare could not last forever. As some of his enemies knew, all they had to do was give McCarthy enough rope and he'd hang himself. When he did, they'd be ready. I'll continue the story after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. In the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower was one of the most beloved people in the United States, so popular that both the Democrats and Republicans courted him to run for president. This, of course, was thanks to his success leading the American efforts during World War II. Ike was no fan of Joe McCarthy. Not since McCarthy went after his friend, George Marshall, who served as Chief of Staff for the U.S. Army, Secretary of Defense, and Secretary of State. He was a hero of the Allied victory. Yet McCarthy accused him of being a communist. That was really offensive. It was untrue, of course, but it was really offensive to Dwight Eisenhower. And Dwight Eisenhower had during the campaign a speech that he was going to use to attack Joe McCarthy and defend Senator Marshall. And his political advisors convinced him not to give that speech. And that was the first time for entirely political motives because he wanted to be president and he was worried that he might not get the nomination or might not get the electoral votes he needed if the important state of Wisconsin, where Joe McCarthy was such a powerful figure, voted against him. So Eisenhower kept the speech in his briefcase. Joe McCarthy got away without being attacked by Eisenhower, which could have been very damaging to him, given how popular Eisenhower was. And when Eisenhower finally made it into the White House, Eisenhower's trusted advisor, his brother, Milton Eisenhower, whispered into Dwight's ear, saying, give up a little of your political capital and take on that bully, Joe McCarthy. But it took years for him to do it. Ike's strategy was simple. Give McCarthy enough rope and he'll hang himself. But in the intervening year between Eisenhower taking office and McCarthy's downfall, many lives were impacted. And I think a president who I greatly respect, Dwight Eisenhower, who did a lot of great things for this country, I think one of his biggest faults was failing to go after Joe McCarthy the way his brother told him he ought to. It led Larry Ty to write that Eisenhower was, quote, McCarthy's enabler-in-chief. It's often said that McCarthy's downfall began during the famous Army McCarthy hearings held before Congress. Larry argues that it really started four months earlier, when tail gunner Joe picked an enemy capable of besting him. He attacked Brigadier General Ralph Zwicker, who, at first, had been a cooperative witness. 
someone McCarthy thought to be on his side. Essentially, a dentist suspected of being a communist had been promoted by Zwicker. When McCarthy learned this, he badgered him publicly. Here is a reenactment from the transcript published in the New York Times. General, let's try and be truthful. I'm going to keep you here as long as you keep hedging and hemming. I am not hedging or hawing. I am not hawing and I don't like to have anyone impugn my honesty, which you just did. Either your honesty or your intelligence. I can't help impugning one or the other. See how nasty he could be? This was not good publicity for McCarthy, especially once the television cameras were rolling and Americans got a taste of his shamelessness. Zwicker was a war hero, but McCarthy treated him with contempt. People noticed, and McCarthy started losing public support. Matters only escalated as Joe ratcheted up his accusations of the army. I think he went after the army because it had all gone to his head. He was enough of a narcissist that he thought that there was nobody too big for him to take on. And he said that there were spies in the army and specifically at a base called Fort Monmouth, which was a critical intelligence base of the US military. He said those spies were dangerous. They were spies connected to the Rosenbergs who were the atomic spies in America. And he sort of used every heartstring that he could imagine tugging at to go after the military. But the United States had only recently been victorious in World War II and the army was at peak popularity. If McCarthy had read the tea leaves, he would have seen that taking on generals isn't the best strategy if you want to survive as a politician in America. And I think that that sort of set the template. McCarthy takes on the military and the Senate decides it's going to investigate this. And it holds these very famous, arguably the most famous hearings other than maybe Watergate in the history of the U.S. Congress, these famous hearings that became known as the Army McCarthy hearings. So famous, in fact, that 30 million Americans watched the first day of proceedings on television. Another 50 million listened on radio or followed via newspaper. This thing was everywhere for 36 days. Roy Cohn had gone from being an asset to a liability for Joe McCarthy. So Roy Cohn, like Joe McCarthy, believed that there were no limits to the power he had. And he had a young assistant, and whether or not the assistant, Roy Cohn, um, although he never publicly came out, he died of AIDS and he was clearly gay. And whether this young assistant named David Shine was just his pal or was his lover, we'll never know and it doesn't matter. Remember, this was a time in the United States when acting on homosexual desires could be against the law, something McCarthy and Cohn played upon during their hearings, igniting what became known as the Lavender Scare, sort of a parallel to the Red Scare where the government went to work removing suspected homosexuals from their positions. But what mattered was Roy Cohn intervened when the army drafted David Shine to give him all kinds of special treatment, partly so he could come to New York and party with Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn took on the chief of staff of the army and the army establishment in trying to get special treatment for his friend. And this was fine when it was happening behind the scenes and when nobody could see what he was doing. But when it came out during those Army McCarthy hearings, Roy Cohn fell even harder than Joe McCarthy did. And it was partly what was said in those hearings and the fact that McCarthy's evidence didn't stand up. 
And it was partly that Joe McCarthy, in front of the glare of these TV cameras, looked like a fat, balding guy who looked a little bit like the bully that people could imagine from their school grounds. He was no longer this noble senator taking on the red menace. He was a wild man on your TV screens. And I think by the end of those hearings, people who watched it, as importantly as people who listened to it, decided that Joe McCarthy wasn't somebody they could go to the bank with. And the fact that behind the scenes, President Eisenhower was helping the army fight back. And the fact that there was a brilliant lawyer from Boston named Joe Welch, who asked the question that resonated across America. Here's how it came about. McCarthy attacked one of Welch's attorneys, alleging that he had ties to the Communist Party. Welch carefully, calmly, fought back. Here he is defending his younger colleague. It is, I regret to say, equally true that I fear he shall always bear a scar needlessly inflicted by you. If it were in my power to forgive you for your reckless cruelty, I would do so. I like to think I'm a gentleman, but your forgiveness will have to come from someone other than me. McCarthy sits there with a comb over, looking disheveled, slowly choosing his words. He tries to win sympathy for Roy Cohn, but it isn't working. So Joe attempts another jab at Welch's team, only to get a sharp rebuke. This is the famous line from Welch. I did you, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cole. No, sir. I meant to do you no personal injury. And if I did, I beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further. Senator, you've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? It seems that this was the moment when people watching television across the country saw McCarthy for who he was, a demagogue, a bully who attacked when anyone called him out for breaking the law or code of ethics. Have you no sense of decency? The hearing continued with other members of the panel choosing to take jabs at McCarthy. I think the files of what you call my staff, my director, my chief of staff, have been the sloppiest and most dangerously handled files that I have ever known of since I've been in the government. Now you can run away if you like, Stu. You can run away if you like. Eventually, the meeting is adjourned. The committee stands and leaves, but McCarthy keeps talking. The cameras no longer see him, just a sea of men heading for the door. He no longer has the attention of the American people. You shouldn't do that, Mr. Simonson. That's just dishonest. That's, that's, the, that's the thing, thing that the Communist Mr. Party Chairman, is doing Mr. too Chairman. long. Apparently, every time anybody says anything against anybody working for Senator McCarthy, he is swearing them and is accusing them of communism. Just answer the question. Do you know of any subversive? That's the best answer that I can give. Do you know of any subversive? Stand in recess until 10 o'clock. It was that question, whether or not he had any decency, that put the last nail in the coffin. McCarthy went from being the most popular bully in the country to toxic 
to the point that literally nobody sat with him during lunch. They skirted around him. Every day in the Senate, he understood that he was being shunned by the very senators he had helped elect. And he became, he went back to being even worse than a backbencher. He became a bit of a pariah. Nobody especially wanted to be seen with him. Nobody wanted to go out with him. Nobody wanted to schmooze with him. And nobody wanted to let him vent his charges in their hearing rooms. And so while he continued to serve in the Senate, he served like he was wearing a scarlet letter. McCarthy was now an outsider. Though he still had a job, his career was basically over. This was almost the end of the story for Joe McCarthy, though Roy Cohn, his young assistant, continued to have influence. He faded from public view for a while. He went back home to New York. He became, over the years, one of the most powerful lawyers and political fixers in New York history. Cohn went on to represent members of the mob and Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News. He also made influential friends like Nancy Reagan. People like Andy Warhol, Cole Barons, and New York politicians showed up at his birthday party at Studio 54. He was eventually disbarred for professional ethics violations. About a half century after he had been Joe McCarthy's protege, a young guy in the real estate business in New York was setting himself up for all that he would have to encounter in the cutthroat world of New York real estate. And this guy's father, a guy named Fred Trump, decided that his young son, Donald Trump, needed the perfect tutor in how to play hardball politics. And who better to tutor somebody on that than Roy Cohn, who had learned at the feet of the master, Joe McCarthy, and he passed on all of those lessons directly to Donald Trump. You can see the crossover influences from McCarthy to Trump. The ability to control the narrative being told in the news. If you say something loud enough and often enough, it becomes truth in the minds of the public. Another one was, if you make an outrageous charge today, as the press is out there investigating whether that charge stands up, if they raise any questions, raise, uh, toss another grenade tomorrow, and they'll forget yesterday's charge. And it is a very definite lesson on how to play the press. Make the press your friend when you can and when they're repeating your charges. And when they start questioning you rather than the people who you are lobbing charges against, attack the press. Roy Cohn died from complications with AIDS in 1986, though he insisted that he didn't have AIDS but liver cancer, even at the end of his life trying to control the narrative. Senator McCarthy didn't live so long. He was sick even during the army hearings, going in and out of the hospital. His alcohol consumption ever increasing, often replacing food. And when he did eat, it was cheeseburgers. He died at just 48 years old. The cause of his demise listed on his death certificate was hepatitis. In a poetic way, both Cohen and McCarthy tried to change the narratives around their death. In truth, it was liquor that got McCarthy. Patrons of the show can hear a bonus featuring Larry Ty discussing how he found the documentary proof for the real cause of Joe's death. As Larry said, we in the United States have a long history of demagogues, bullies who gain our attention, entertain us, and leave a wake of destruction in their path. We'll meet more of them in season six. Demagogues provide easy answers, but not substance. Can we resist their star power long enough to see them for who they are? Can we call them what they are, even though they champion our causes? 
Maybe the most important takeaway that will prepare us for next season is this. When we face a credible threat like communism, how will we react? The Soviet Union threatened the United States with nuclear war, killing tens of millions of their own citizens, suppressed media, disappeared, imprisoned, or ejected religious people, and gobbled up Eastern Europe. When we're faced with a credible threat, are we going to be willing to do the hard work of dealing with it in a righteous way, or will we rely on easy answers, scapegoats, and the protection of a demagogue? Special thanks to Larry Ty. He's a fascinating man and super patient. He was kind enough to come on even though he's in the midst of deadlines. He has a new book coming out this spring called The Jazz Men, exploring how Duke Ellington, Satchmo Armstrong, and Count Basie shaped the civil rights movement. He's also working on a book about Jewish resistors to the Holocaust. I am hard at work on season six. Good things take time. God willing, next season will tell the story of how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's going really well. I've already recorded with a bunch of fascinating guests, but the story is super complicated and I want to get it right. Also, since I have a full-time job, I need to give myself enough completed episodes so I don't have any more stressful days trying to keep up. This season, I'm going to create a generous buffer. Subscribe so you get every new episode as it's released. And if you'd like an email reminder when the new season starts, you can sign up for the email list on the website at trucepodcast.com. I'd love to do the show full-time, but for now, I've got to keep driving a school bus to keep food on the table. You can help me reach the goal on Patreon, Venmo, PayPal, or via check. Details are in your show notes or at trucepodcast.com slash donate. And if you give via Patreon, you'll hear more of my interview with Larry Ty. Thanks so much for your continued support. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.